we hit the surf, it was throwing us around, it was pitch black. Of course, we had all the trepidation of what lie ahead of us, and already we were being thrown around in a, in, a, in a washing machine. We eventually pushed through it, got out into the channel, and then the enormity of how small we were in this massive channel on a little dinghy in the pitch black, one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, and we had no support. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with ex-Royal Marine commando and best-selling author Lee West. Lee made the dangerous crossing of the English Channel in a small boat after spending a week undercover in a French migrant camp. 99% of were what I would describe from as a military term is a fighting age male. Young, healthy, fit um, men. We maybe saw one or two women in the camp the whole time we were there, apart from aid workers and other people, outsiders. He talks about the difficulties of leaving the military after 17 years and seeing his plans for a new life smashed by Covid lockdowns. I'd left this brotherhood I'd been in for most of my adult life. My new business had been forced to close. I lived on my own. My daughter lived in America, we could no longer now go and see and I didn't know when we would be able to, to travel again. And for the first time in 20 years, I had absolutely no responsibility, structure, accountability, purpose. I'm Lee Ho, and this is British Thought Leaders. Lee West, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You've led an incredible life so far. In 17 years, Royal Marines Commando, four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you for your service. You're a father who runs a business. You started charity, and you're a best-selling author. So it's your autobiography, Never Above, Never Below. But you also wrote um, several other books where you kind of go on a mission, if you like, and then write about it. I wanted to start talking to you about one of those. Mm. So you went over to Paris to the migrant camp. You spent a week in the migrant camp undercover as a migrant, and then you basically came back on a, on a small boat, as the illegal immigrants do, to the UK. Why did you decide to do this? So the journey uh, started with Tramp Face uh, quite a few years ago, which is the name of our projects we do every year, where every year we would go and live homeless uh, for a week on our annual leave with an associated challenge with it. The first one was just living homeless. It was a challenge in itself. And then we decided, well, each year let's keep doing it because we were doing it for charity as well, uh, as well as sort of um, our own stimulation um, and awareness. And each year then we decided to keep doing it and thought, well, well, we can't just do the same thing every year. Let's up, up it each time, put, add a, an, a, an extra challenge into it and make it a little bit more interesting and dangerous in some cases. And then we got to a point where it was a very topical and polarising subject of the migrant camps in Paris and Calais, um, where we went to. And we thought, well, yeah, we've seen a lot of it on the media. We've seen, we've seen it on YouTube clips and everything else. Let's go there, unannounced, unsupported, turn up and see what is actually going on for, our, for with our own eyes uh, in person. So, yeah, that that's how Tramfe started. And then, again, like I said, we would just up the ante each year and... That was topical and dangerous, and we decided to go and give it a bash. What was it like in the migrant camp? What happens there on a daily basis? It was very unnerving uh, to start. Of course, we the realization hit us that we'd 
put ourselves in this isolated, volatile, notorious camp, which we didn't really know anything about, apart from what we see on the media and our own little bit of research. You, uh, Mike? No, we, with the homeless stuff, we had cover story, which was really believable on the streets of the UK. We are ex-forces, we've found ourselves temporarily homeless and we're trying to find our feet. We couldn't, of course, do that with the migrant camps because be looking very European, we didn't look like 99% of the occupants. So a cover story in that instance was that we had a good think about it. And the one we settled on was that we were deserters from the French Foreign Legion. All right. Which uh, when Paul, uh, my partner in Tramface, came up with this idea, and I was like, this is never going to work. And it actually turned out from an instance, it was the one believable story that we did actually have to roll out and did get believed by the locals and not only people in the camp. So we were deserters from the French Foreign Legion who'd jumped the wall because we decided we didn't like it. We were making our way back to the UK. But of course, when you join the Legion, they take your documents off you, your identity. So we couldn't get across the border despite being UK uh, citizens until we could get word to London and the UK that we were British citizens and they did a background check and then sent paperwork over. So until that moment, we were homeless living in Calais. So that was a story. We were just camped out on the border, waiting for word to get across rather than trying to pretend to be migrants, yeah. which we weren't going to get away with. Yeah, so that was that was the cover story. And yeah, we turned up and we, we didn't really stick out as much as we thought we would because during the daytime, there's a lot of Westerners um, hanging around, journalists, um, diplomats, officials, uh, a, a lot of aid workers. So we weren't the only um, people who, who stuck out. So during the daytime, we, we could we could sort of blend in, although we, we were dressed scruffily and we, we didn't look like a journalist or um, an official, which probably drew a little bit of suspicion. Probably thought we were undercover police. Um, in fact, it did. We did uh, get approached with that a couple of times. But then during the evenings, it would... Uh, the camp, the mood in the camps would change uh, significantly. It's a lot of aspects of it surprised me. A lot of people may look at it and think, well, this is a camp united in their goals and a big community all helping each other. And it's not. The reality is it's a collection of warring tribes and a lot of separate little camps, um, with the main belligerents being from Eritrea, uh, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, Afghanistan, and uh, Kurdistan was a lot of the a lot of the main groups we we came across, and they weren't in harmony. They were arguing with each other. Um, there was a lot of infighting, and when the sun went down, there's a lot of drinking in the camps, which surprised people as well. We got photos of the, the sort of the mess that was there, a lot of drinking, uh, drug use. And uh, as I know, after 17 years in the Marines, when they put a lot of young men, which they predominantly were, in a place together, they're bored because there's nothing else to do apart from sit around the campfire, drinking, and the politics come into it, different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries. And they're all competing as well because as much as you may think they're all united, they want to get across the border first. So there is competition there as well. And you put all these, a lot of people look at it from the outside and don't see these inner workings of it. And we did get to see it. Uh, yeah, and there would be a lot of fighting, a lot of uh, arguments, and it would become um, quite volatile after, after dark. 
You mentioned a lot of young men. I mean, one would assume there's lots of kind of women and children fleeing war and persecution. That's the definition of refugees. Were there not? No. We 99% of were what I would describe uh, from as a military term is a fighting age male, young, healthy, fit um, men. We maybe saw one or two women in the camp the whole time we were there, apart from aid workers and other people, outsiders. And I, I don't, we didn't get to talk to them, so we don't know exactly what their purpose was in the camp. But yeah, it was, it, they, they were young men. Um, Did you feel under threat? Yeah, there was, um, there was some threatening behaviour. Um, sometimes it could be just looks, but we'd try and engage with people. We made friends with people as well. Um, so not everyone was hostile towards us. Um, but yeah, we did get uh, a lot of sup suspicion come towards us. We did get some who tried to make friends with us because of, the, because of our appearance. They thought we were Albanians or Europeans, and therefore we were, would be able to help them in their goal of getting across, getting trafficked. Um, but it was, yeah, it was quite, it's volatile because you never knew if somebody was going to be your friend or your foe in any instance. So after a week there, you set off kind of coming home. And when you're in the military, you obviously have high-tech equipment, planning teams and stuff. But this is just you and your mate taking a dinghy across one of the most dangerous shipping lanes in the world. Yeah. What was the trip like and what were the dangers you were thinking about? Yeah, uh, despite my background, it was far as far from a military precision planned uh, event as you, as you could get. So we'd spent the time living in the camp and... We'd, we'd spent the night sleeping with uh, a group of Syrians who we'd made friends with. And it was, it was bizarre, really, because going back to what you're saying about what the type of people they were and were they refugees. And they, for me, they weren't refugees because anybody who is a refugee who's fleeing from war, persecution, deserves to be helped. And that goes without saying. But the moment you are provided with that help, and then decide, okay, well, I want to move on to somewhere different for whatever reasons, you, you, you give up that status of being a refugee because then you've been given the safe haven, you've been given that opportunity to, to be safe, and you've decided for your own personal reasons that you want to move somewhere else, which is fair enough. Um, I've got a young daughter who lives in the USA. I visit her, spend half my time between the USA and the UK. I'd love to have permanent residency in the USA to be able to go there as much as I can, live there, move there. Who wouldn't? Um, but that's for my own personal reasons. Unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that and that's uh, not the law. So then that doesn't mean I then resort to illegal ways of trying to get that status in the USA. I've got to work towards getting it legitimately. And yeah, the, the the guys we came across said they'd, they'd they haven't just landed in northern France. They'd told us about their stories, and it's not me speculating. We we lived with these with these guys. We we spoke to them. We listened to their stories. They told us that they'd landed in other parts of Europe and made their way to northern France because they, for their own reasons, whether it was family, job opportunities, um, language barriers, whatever it was, they decided that they wanted to move on. And again, which is fair enough, but they had been provided that safe haven. So at that point that they um, let go of that status, they then become 
economic migrants in, in my eyes. But we, we saw that side of it and uh, dug underneath and we thought, well, okay, then they're crossing the channel uh, in the boats, again, which was all over the news, topical. How hard or easy is it? They're doing it. Um, could we put ourselves in the same position, live in the camps that live in, and then with very little planning and preparation, do the same and get across the channel undetected um, and unsupported, uh, as it turned out. So we decided to give it a go. We, a friend met us, he came across on the ferry with uh, a deflated dinghy with a small engine. So it was, it, we purposely wanted it to be not well thought out and planned on purpose because we didn't want it to just be manipulated into something that we could s succeed in quite easily. Yeah. We wanted it to be fraught and have the opportunity of being caught and to be realistic. So he came across on the ferry. Again, chances for him to be intercepted there. Why is a guy coming across on the ferry in a van with a, with a boat and an engine in the back? Um, he met us. We hadn't even um, scouted the launch position that we were going to head off from. We just went on Google Maps, looked along the French coast, found what we saw was a slipway into the English Channel, and went, that's where we're going. So we met a friend. We went to the slipway in the dead of night, pumped up the dinghy, which nearly woke up the half of France because it was from a, an engine 12-volt uh, battery. Put a small engine on the back, dragged it into down the beach, put it in the channel, got in and set off for... Um, we, had, we had a rough bearing up north, again, not very well thought out, in the pitch black and with a bearing to head towards England. So we set off into the surf, the, the, the initial parts of it was, was, was really scary. And despite my experience in the Marines, I'm not ashamed to say that I was bricking it. We hit the surf, it was throwing us around, it was pitch black. Of course, we had all the trepidation of what lie ahead of us, and already we were being thrown around in a, in a, in a washing machine. We eventually pushed through it, got out into the channel, and then the enormity of how small we were in this massive channel on a little dinghy in the pitch black, one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, and we had no support. Uh, we just had a, uh, quite a close call with a big ship uh, in the dark, because it's really hard to judge uh, how close they are until it was sort of right upon us. Um, we went across its front, and it's now just over my shoulder. Uh, we also going off to our right as well, now off to our flank. Um, you can see it, he's quite close, we can see his uh, red light for his port side. Uh, so maybe just idle a little bit, just to let him get past. Um, yeah, still pretty dark, bumpy, uh, really unnerving start. Nobody knew where we were after we set off. We had our mobile phones waterproofed inside our pockets, wherever they would get signal in the middle of the channel, we didn't know. We had nobody shadowing us. And it just hit me then, when something goes wrong, that could be the engine, that could be a puncture, that could be a boat hitting us, getting lost, um, running out of fuel. Nobody's going to be coming for us. This, this is not like the military where you send a distress call and somebody's there and ready to come and pick you up. So, so that, these massive boats would, would never be able to see you, would they? Uh, no way, no. I mean, even in, even in, it was pitch black, but even in sort of decent conditions, they wouldn't have seen us until maybe the last minute, if at all. And then they're not going to change their course, even if they could uh, at that distance. So, yeah, there was a lot of, 
there was a lot of anxious moments and a lot of thoughts going around about all the things that could go wrong. Not far now, you can see the White Cliffs quite well. Dover Port is off to the right. Uh, I think we're heading towards Folkestone. Uh, it's a bit choppy now. Waves getting um, a lot bigger and getting cold as well now. Cold setting the city, we've got here for uh, a few hours. Uh, so I'll close him in and hopefully it won't be too much longer. So the, you made it over, and how long did it take? Yeah, it took about four and a half hours, and we did see quite large ships, we smaller ones and the large ones. It was hard to, to ascertain how far away they were from us. We could see their lights, but being pitch black, we had no reference to how far away that light was to us. Uh, but we pushed through, we made it, and it, we hit a beach in Kent, not far from Folkestone Harbour. High fives all around because it, it was a success. And that was one of the things I was scared about the most, really, was not being able to, to accomplish it. And, and then you were in the news, because Royal Marine can't do the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, and that was embarrassing, wasn't it? I mean, Marine can't even get across his own, uh, his own channel to a beach in his own country. So we made it, high fives on the beach, which at this point then, if we'd been an actual migrant boat, of course, it'd be high fives, and then leg it. Yeah or the boat turns around if that's what they do, I'm not 100% sure, uh, to go back and pick up some more or back to their, their place of origin. And yeah, the guys on the boat either leg it or hand themselves in, whatever the, the deal is um, that they want to do when they get there. Wasn't as simple for us. Of course, then we had to pack up, uh, drag everything up the beach, which turned out to be a shingle beach. So it was like a travelator trying, trying to get the engine and everything up it. We hit a promenade, um, and the next problem was it was a pedestrian promenade. So our friend in the van, who was, who'd gone back across in the ferry to come and pick us up, couldn't drive down. So with all this happening, it took, we were there for well over an hour. The sun had come up by this point, and of course, there were houses facing the beach. And if you live in that part of the world, and you see a couple of blokes wash up in a dinghy in the uh, first light, you're going to probably alert someone which they did. Uh, a couple of local bobbies turned up, questioned us, which initially we, we were taking it quite lightly because we hadn't actually done anything illegal. We had our passports on us, we were British citizens, just out on the channel for, for a day on the boat. Technically, we should have checked in with the harbour. So yeah, we, were, we had broken a rule, but we weren't doing anything illegal. Um, so initially, we were sort of playing around with them, having a joke and batting their questions away and then eventually Border Force turned up, uh, Customs turned up, and then eventually the National Crime Agency. So it started to get pretty serious at that point. And I think they, well, they were embarrassed as well because we had pulled their pants down. We'd, we'd breached their defences, got across with very little um, behind us and exposed them of how easy it was. And I, it, was, it was quite a funny moment where the border force, salty old sea dog, turned up and he sort of looked at us and he looked, pointed at the deflated dinghy on the floor and said, let me get this right, you've just come from northern France on that. And we were like, yeah. And he was like, it's four seven sea state out there. He said, not even my cutter boats are going out. That's why you've got across and beat us because it's too rough for our own boats to go out. Um, yeah, and then eventually um, we got arrested by, by the NCA. 
So they thought you were traffickers. Yeah, we, what we didn't know at the point of arrest until we got back to the station where the custody sergeant had to justify why they were holding us was 10 minutes before we landed, two actual boats had turned up about a couple hundred metres down the coast from our position. We found out that their drivers were ex-military, so of course when they were questioning us, what do you do for a living, Mr West? Well, I'm in the Royal Marines. Uh, my friend's a former Royal Engineer, two and two together. They must be in cahoots with these other boats who have turned up of actual migrants. They'd, I believe they'd um, got them, got to them as they were hitting the beach. So, yeah, they, we were arrested on suspicion of human trafficking. Um, Taken back to the police station, and it was another comedy moment because we did actually have a stowaway on the boat. We, anyone of a certain age will remember the sitcom uh, Only Fools and Horses. There's a famous episode where they inadvertently come back from France with a, a stowaway in the van, uh, Gary, as he's called. Our friend, when he'd come over to meet us, had brought a blow-up doll and dressed him up and put, put a, stuck a Gary's face to it. So, of course, when we're getting questioned by these very serious uh, operatives from the NCA, we were just laughing at this, the fact that we dad brought a stowaway uh, across. And by the end of the interviews, they were actually referring to Myself, I could see Mr. West in the boat, I could see Mr. Dwyer driving, I could see Gary laying down in the front. They were referring to him as if he was an actual human being. So it was, yeah, they didn't appreciate that I was laughing when, uh, when that happened. Uh, yeah, we were arrested, um, locked up for about 14 hours, questioned, released in Kent with everything taken off us, phones, um, which was a drama because we live in South Wales and our friend's van had been commandeered, uh, confiscated as well as part of the thing, so we had to find our way back to Wales on trains. In the meantime of us leaving Folkestone and getting back home to Wales, uh, my house had been raided, doors smashed in, it didn't even wait for me to get home. I mean, they would have known I was on my way back from, from Kent. Doors smashed uh, through, uh, raided our homes and taken everything um, that they believed was of worth to them, despite the fact that they'd seen my phone videos of us crossing the channel with, with nobody. Um, yeah, and then about four or five weeks later, they, it was no further action and charges were dropped from that. So yeah, it was a, an interesting little um, end into it. Has this experience changed your views on the whole kind of small boats and, and migrants issue? Uh, in respects to um, my belief that refugees should be given help, no matter where they're from, where they are. If we can, we should help them. But at the moment um, they become economic migrants, then no. My opinion isn't that they should be allowed to come across in boats just because they believe they want to go to a different country. Um, and we got to see from, from experiences in the camp and coming across well, a lot of people don't think, a lot of people say, oh, well, they haven't just come here from a war-torn country. Well, we actually got to listen to those stories. The guy told us, the guy's told us where they'd come from, how they'd got through Europe. We stayed in a migrant camp on the outskirts of Paris, which was a staging post. We spoke to a lot of people there. And we're like, well, what's the story? Oh, we've come from Italy, whatever it is. We're staying here for a bit, taking stock, and then we're heading to France because we want to get to England. They paid money, uh, good money. Uh, it's... Not only just to get there, you've got to sustain yourself um, through that, that whole trip. You, you can't just, 
land with nothing in southern Europe and get to northern France without the means. And we heard the stories about um, how they'd got there. And they told us about, um, we met a group called No Borders, which was uh, an activist group who believed that there should be no borders in the world. Everyone should be able to go where they want. And they were outraged at this rule that um, we found out to talk to the guys that a lot of them in the, in the camps in northern France, you think, well, what, they, they need help. Why don't they go and hand themselves in to the local French authorities and they'll get support. They'll get someone to live and citizenship eventually. And then they could try and legally find their way to England once they become French citizens. And we found out one of the rules why they didn't do that. And they chose voluntarily, which is a key factor of why um, I'm against them just coming across on boats is they were living in these camps voluntarily because they could have gone and handed themselves into the French. And the rule is that they didn't want to because they'd already been processed in another country, Greece or Italy, somewhere else, which they didn't want to go back to because they thought that was worse than France. Right, right. And the rule was if they did hand themselves in in France, they wouldn't stay there. They would be sent back to where they were first processed, where they, where they were uh, the origin in Europe. And because of that rule, they, they chose to live homeless in the camps in northern France, which, yeah, you, you, when you meet them, you, it does humanise it a lot more than just watching it on the news. Are oh, they illegal? They're trying devious ways to get across the channel. You do meet them. You do feel sympathy for them when you talk to the ones who were friendly to us and you get their backstory. And, yeah, it does put that, that personal side on it, but that doesn't detract from me still knowing that they are purposely um, trying to break the law and achieve their goals by devious, uh, devious methods. I wanted to talk about another one of your Trump Facebook series. I mean, you were homeless for a week. Um, can you talk us through like, what you did? You set some ground rules, didn't you? Yeah, Trump Face, the first one, we went homeless in Swansea, UK, and... Instead of like a lot of the, the homeless missions you've seen over the years where a reporter or maybe a local official would decide, I'm going to go and live homeless for the night just to see how it is and probably a bit of PR. Um, we wanted to get the real story. So we thought, right, well, instead of going there and going to everyone, hey, we're just doing this just to, just to see, let's come up with a backstory, which we mentioned earlier, and go undercover and just pretend that we were actual homeless so that we can integrate with the public and the other homeless people and the services that they get legitimately and be treated uh, the same as them and then we could get the the proper story so the rules were roughly around we could do anything a homeless person could do we couldn't use our own money or support from friends or family or people who knew what we were doing we'd have to beg every day for anything that we could get and sleep rough and we would have to actively engage with other homeless people and the services to get the, the full picture. So yeah, so we set the ground rules and yeah, took off uh, for a week on the streets. So what kind of people did you meet? It was, it was a wide range of people and you met people who had ended up homeless because of a bit of misfortune, lost their house because they lost a job or split up with a partner or something. And we tend to find with, find with those people that it was a temporary thing because they'd ended up in a situation they actively wanted to get back into society. Yeah. And the, the contrary to part of the relief, the, the help is there if you engage. You met people who had ended up there because of addiction. Um, 
some people who ended up there because they were long-term homeless and they just become accustomed to that life and found it hard to get back into society. Some people adjust in, maybe they've come out of prison and they were in that transition phase of trying to integrate back into society. And it, yeah, we saw, we met some brilliant people, some characters, very interesting stories, very intelligent people who had led seemingly successful lives beforehand. And we also met some very unsavory people as well. There was much like the migrant camp, you can't look at it from the outside and think, oh, everyone is the same. Uh, it's the same as any walk of life, good people and bad people. And we interacted with them all. We made friends and we saw a lot of, yeah, infighting, thieving from each other and violence towards each other as well. How did you feel about life on the streets by the end of the week? We, we, we got thoroughly uh, immersed in it. Uh, we were absorbed by the whole, the, the, the whole life of living on the streets. And by the time we left, I actually missed it a little bit. Um, it was hard, it was tiring, it was nerving and anxious. At night, we'd try and find somewhere to sleep. But if you did manage to drop off to sleep, you'd soon be woken up by a noise or the uncertainty of something happening to you. Um, so it was tiring, it was draining, it was massively enlightening. We, we got to see um, a snapshot of a life that you do, you do get a, a small glimpse of when you're walking around the street, see someone begging, and then you carry on with the rest of your day. We got to see, what well, what do they do after they've stopped begging? Where do they sleep? Where do they go to wash their clothes, uh, get a meal? And in one way as well, it was one of the most carefree weeks of my life. All those petty little mundane daily routine and tasks you have to do, which are petty, but they do weigh you down, had gone. It was, I liken it to uh, my times at war, where it's a very straightforward, simple existence. That's not to confuse it with it being easy, because it isn't, but your goals are straightforward. F for regards to on the streets, wake up, where am I going to find something to eat? and a shelter for today, and where am I going to sleep tonight? I'll do a bit of begging, hang around with the guys, maybe have a flag and a cider. And again, not easy, but straightforward. You knew what you had to do. And you could see why a lot of people choose that existence. And that's controversial. The name of the book is Homeless by Choice, and it's a double meaning, as in we chose to go homeless for a week. But a lot of people do choose that life. And a lot of people challenge me that, and they say, well, how can you say, why would somebody want to live so, well, they didn't necessarily desire it, but because they find it so hard to assimilate back into society with having bills, rent, getting a job, responsibilities, after having not having that, they find it, and maybe they've got an addiction as well thrown into it or mental health issues, they find it hard to get back into that. And for them, as unbelievable as it sounds, being homeless, because a lot of them do have shelter and they're not, actually sleep on the street every night is a preferred option and we saw that uh, when people told us frankly they said I just can't cope with going back into normal society uh, yeah so we saw a wide range of, uh, of people and um, we saw yeah, the great side of humanity as well from the public a lot of generosity each day we would beg in no more than two hours a day we, we set as a, as a condition we'd easily get more than 40 pound cash uh, along with bags of food. So we didn't even have to spend that cash on feeding ourselves. The bags of food and then disposable 
cash just given to us by the public. So yeah, we saw we saw the two sides of of humanity. You mentioned some people with military backgrounds that you met on the streets. In 2020, the Royal British Legion released this data saying over 20% of the homeless people in London do have a services background as well. It's a kind of a, a, a growing problem. Mm. I mean, you spend quite a bit of time in the US. I think veterans in the US are treated with admiration that they're heroes. Whereas over here, I don't, we don't seem to have the same kind of like reference for our veterans. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, the stat at the time when we went on the streets was about 30% in Wales were former military. And I do spend a lot of time in the US. My young daughter, she's eight. She's US citizen. She was born there. Her mother's American, um, born in Virginia Beach, lives in Georgia now. And with Americans, they are a bit different to us, uh, different culture, different outlook. They are very patriotic especially when it comes to their forces and America in general. And they're very overtly opinionated about it, um, whereas we can be a bit more subtle. And, yeah, they're very forthright and very, um, very upfront with their, with their emotions. Maybe a little bit over the top, some people could say. And I'm allowed to say that because with my adopted Yank status. Uh, they, they do show a lot of emotion. And I've seen that in in different circumstances in my many trips to the US, good and bad. I say good, not bad, but embarrassing. I've had times where I've been at the airport and somebody spotted my military backpack and I've been able to skip a line because, because of military. And I will admit to them, so I'm British and they say, doesn't matter, you served. And it's amazing to see that they've just got that outward um, appreciation of you. Yeah, it's a really positive thing. Isn't yeah, it? it's brilliant. and. And on the other hand, again, a brilliant example, but embarrassing for me was I went to watch a New York Giants game, playing New Jersey, curiously, and they were presenting some US Marines with medals at halftime on the, on the field. So the announcer got on, got on, the, got on the mic, all active um, military, please stand for a round of applause. I was serving in the Royal Marines at the time, so my friend, she nudged me, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm British. I'm, and she was like, I was like, no. So she snitched me up to everyone, sat around us, and then they, they all berated me, and I was demanded to, to stand up. And they were quite angry about it. They were upset that, that I was refusing um, to stand up. So they got me to stand up, and then it's just this bizarre moment where everyone around me was just staring right at me and like forcefully clapping their hands. Um, so it is completely different. And I don't think we're necessarily less proud of our military, but we're more reserved in our... Um, output, uh, openly um, output towards it, which does then tend to make people think that we aren't as as proud. So yeah, I think it is a little bit uh, more to do with their their personality. You spent 17 years as a Royal Marines commando. You did four tours Iraq, Afghanistan. What was life like out there? Are these Hollywood movies realistic? Uh, they're generally not. Uh, when you get shot at, it doesn't go into slow motion. It's all romantic and dramatic. I mean, it is dramatic. And for me, no two instances of getting shot at are the same. Um, some people have only been shot at once. We're lucky that it is the same, that, that one time. But it's always different because you, it's always a different circumstance. You could be in cover and prepared, ready for it in which case you could be a bit more measured in your approach. 
you could be in the open, you've been ambushed, it's completely unexpected, and you're in trouble because that you've been, you've been chosen to be in the, in the killing ground. Um, you could be taking casualties, at which point then your focus isn't as much on you getting shot at, but what's happened with somebody else who's been shot or who's been injured, and now what have I got to do to, to help them as well? So every instance is slightly different in some way in, uh, in how you react to it and what you're thinking about. And a lot of the time, the, the, the instances I'm most worried about generally aren't the ones when you're getting shot at, which sounds weird to a lot of people. But for me, when you get shot at, unless it hits you straight away, you can affect the outcome of that situation. You can do something, you can get into cover, you can get down, you can fire back. Right, you can call for support. There's a lot of things where you can get involved in, in the outcome of that situation. Things that scared me more than that was IEDs, uh, devices planted in the ground, roadside bombs, suicide bombers. And because when that happens, if you're the immediate target of it, there's nothing you can do about that. You have to deal with the aftermath, but once it happens, that's it. The, the outcome is, is set in stone. And that, that feeling of not knowing where it was or when it was going to happen was, was more worrying to me than being shot at because when it did happen, there was, there was little I could do to, to affect the outcome. You know, Mike Tyson said when everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Is that what it's like when the combat situation kicks off? Does your training guard the window or do you stick to it? Yeah, Mike Tyson's right. Uh, we have a very similar saying in the, in the military. Uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right. And it's right. You, you can plan, you can train, you can do everything you can. But as soon as that first round goes past your head or that it kicks off, it's an open book. Everything is then a fluid. And at many, many moments in my, before my first tour going to Iraq, questioning myself, well, everyone's telling me I'm this elite Royal Marines commando. I'm the pinnacle. I'm, I'm ready in all respects. But am I? Am I ready in all respects to go to war? And the answer was yes. And that wasn't because I was some accomplished, all singing, all dancing, polished Marine. It was because nobody is ever fully ready to go to war. Um, I was as ready as I could be. And that's all you can do because nobody's ever ready for the absolute chaos that is war. So all you can do is prepare yourself to accept that when you go, you're not in control of what happens. You can control what you do and try and deal with it as much as you can, but you've just got to accept and go, I can't control everything. It's going to be chaos, it's going to happen, and I've just got to accept that I've got to do my best when it does happen. And that was the approach that, that I took with it, and I'd recommend anybody else. You say in your autobiography you didn't flirt with danger, you speed dated danger. Yeah. And do you enjoy the, the, the rush from the dangerous situations? Yeah, it's uh, something I've thought about. I wouldn't quite use the word enjoy, but there is, yeah, it's, there's massive stimulation from it. The, just the adventure and the excitement of the, the unknown of, I think, and we all get it, we all love that, that, um, that feeling of unexpectedness uh, of what's going to happen and how you how it's going to test you and how you're going to deal um, with those situations. So yeah, I think my my tramp face missions allude to that, where I'd get time off from the Marines, single, lived on my own. I was like, well, I'm not just going to sit in the house for three weeks. 
ah, let's go and live homeless for a week and put myself in a, in a different uh, position to, to try and get that adrenaline and, uh, in a, a different kind of way. So weird to say, but I volunteered for all my four tours. And a lot of people would say, well, of course you did. You joined the Marines. Of course you're a volunteer. Yes, that's right. But it doesn't mean you have to go to every opportunity of combat. And I actively sought those roles. I chose a specialization in weapons and tactics, which meant I was going to be at the forefront of leading men on training and then uh, for combat situations. And whenever there was a chance to move to a unit that was going to be next up in line, I, I took it. So, yeah, they, they, without a doubt, it's looking, it's not me just saying it, but from my, my background, my history, that I definitely um, sought those more exciting posts in my time. What was the most dangerous thing that happened to you? Uh, despite being shot at and have explosions and everything else rocketed um, all those times, the one of the one of the instances that chills me the most still was not getting shot at. It was a a helicopter ride. We'd been into a village in Afghanistan, uh, conducted our mission, and we were being extracted by a helicopter. Took us back to camp. We landed back into base, got showered up, went for a debrief. Um, as I'm heading there, I hear on the radio, helicopter crash in Afghanistan, 19, all, all crew on board, 19 killed. Not unusual to hear, obviously sad, but okay, it was happening quite a bit. And went, went to the ops room and was met by a lot of uh, shocked faces. It was the helicopter we'd just been on. It had dropped us off. We'd then gone back out into the desert, picked up a group of Afghan local soldiers, and then crashed on its way back to camp. And he just sat there thinking, well, as I mentioned earlier, when someone's shooting at me or something's happened, I can still do something about it. When you sat on that helicopter and it's going to fall out of the sky, there's nothing you can do about it. And just that sort of, it, when I was sat on it, that helicopter's time was ticking and it was to, to tragedy. And it was just a, a matter of time of whether you were caught in that tragedy. Um, yeah, and so it's, I mean, you saw, we saw the best of humanity in, in war. People, doctors, other troops trying to help people save life and limb. And he also saw the worst of it. People hell-bent on taking life and limb. Um, yeah, so I appreciate that I got to see everything I did get to see. And I was able to walk away and look back on it and reflect. So we get to the start of 2020, you decide, you know, your time is up, you've done 17 years and you want to leave the military, you can spend more time with your daughter and things like that. And then suddenly the lockdowns happen. I mean, it must be difficult moving from military to civilian life in the normal situation, but that must have been really hard when the lockdowns happened. Yeah, it was one of the, well, it was the darkest period of my life, which is saying something with the, the life I've had. Um, I bought a business prior to leaving uh, the Royal Marines. My official discharge date came through in February 2020, month before the national lockdown. The, so I was like, well, that's, that's fine. I got the business to look after. And the transition is difficult at, at, at a normal time, at best. And so then I went into a situation where I just left the Royal Marines. They stopped paying me. I'd left this brotherhood I'd been in for the most of my adult life. My new business had been forced to close. 
I lived on my own. My daughter lived in America, who could no longer now go and see, and I didn't know when we would be able to, to travel again. And for the first time in 20 years, I had absolutely no responsibility, structure, accountability, purpose. It was, if I don't get out of bed and leave the house in the morning, nobody's ringing that phone to go, why haven't you come to work? Why haven't you reported here? Why haven't you done this project? And yeah, so it went from what would have been a, a difficult time anyway to being the worst thing possible. It was a perfect storm. And from living your life at a thousand miles an hour for all those years to literally nothing. And yeah, I struggled. I locked myself away. I uh, started drinking too much. I wasn't harming anyone apart from myself. But it just seemed that I'd lost all direction. I was like, well, when's this going to end? What is, what is my purpose now? So it was, yeah, a very difficult period. Was there much of a support network? So I guess everyone leaving the military must have this to some degree. Mm. Yeah, the, the charities are amazing. There's a lot of charities out there, probably too many, which stops them then coordinating enough to focus on, on people. And the, the forces do have some form of, of resettlement support. And it's difficult. I, w I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't berate them for it. It's, they have so many people. How can you cater it to every single person? You can't because my situation of leaving and having a business and then being closed, whatever, be completely different to somebody else who's got a family of four and maybe he's going into a project management job. Or So it, it's difficult for them to co coordinate that. But the military side of it, the support was there. Unfortunately, I found out that the civilian side wasn't. Now, it was bad luck of the timing of me leaving, the business getting closed, living on my own. But I thought you pay, you pay tax all your life, and quite a lot while I, was, while I was serving, and you see people get benefits and support, and you think, well, one day if I need that, surely, after contributing for so many years, I'm going to be a recipient of it. And I found out that that wasn't the case. I, I wasn't allowed to claim furlough, despite being director of the business, um, because it wasn't actually on the books getting paid despite the fact that I paid 10 staff and income tax and uh, corporation tax and VAT. So I couldn't claim furlough. I was like, fine, that's the rules. I can't. In that case, I can get unemployment support because my business has been closed, so I can't employ myself in it. I've just, um, I've just left the Marines and I was medically discharged. Uh, I'm deaf in my left ear, so it was a medical discharge for uh, disability caused by service. So I hadn't just left of my own accord because I was bored. So I thought, well, surely there's going to be some support for that if I can't get furlough. And I was told directly by the leader of the council in Swansea, you can't, because I just received a lump sum pension, which was to support me for losing my career for a medical condition. Uh, it disqualified me from having any support. So I didn't get a single penny um, of personal support during that whole period of, of COVID. It's an incredible amount of hardships all kind of appearing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah all, all that good luck that I'd, uh, that I'd uh, had throughout my life all just came crashing back uh, back down in one. So you, you, you drank quite a lot at that time to kind of deal with the situation. Yeah, yeah and just boredom. Um, like I said I'd, I'd always, throughout my life, always, whether it was Tramp Face or the military, had something, some sort of project I was working on, and now I had nothing. 
I mean, I could have spent it writing books. There were lots of things I could have done, of course, but that's in a bit with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I chose to just sit there, watch war films, and drink too much. Um, but luckily, managed to managed to get out of it. Did you go and see like, a, a doctor or anyone like that? And did, did they have any kind of views on what you could do? Yeah, I I ended up in hospital. Uh, I'd locked myself away, um, taking it too far, and ended up in hospital. And so what I found there was a lot of barriers there as well because with my background, um, they took me to hospital, and they of course wanted to know what was going on. Why? Why is this guy who's had such a fulfilling life, good career? Um, now turned into what we see sat in front of us uh, here. So I tried to explain to them, look, this has happened. It's unfortunate circumstances. I've allowed it to get on top of me. I, I would never blame anyone or anything. I did allow it to happen. And I, what I described as a, I was having a rough patch. Um, but of course, their probing was Royal Marines, being the combat, yeah, four times, PTSD. It's, it's the easy answer. And... Again, not putting anyone down for that. It, it, that would be the obvious answer to it. And I tried to say, well, I probably have got some forms of PTSD and showing symptoms of it, but I don't think this is why I'm in this position right now. I'm having a bit of mild depression, I've hit a rough patch, and I'm struggling personally to deal with it. But my background was a barrier because whether it was the easy option for them or that they just convinced themselves that that was it and I I was arguing with them. It was, no, we'll send you off to speak to somebody um, about PTSD. Do you think it's over-prescribed for ex-military people? Yeah, I do, yeah. And the, that, that gave me an insight to how it can be. And unfortunately, between that and maybe some people taking advantage of it, is the problem is the spectrum is so large for PTSD. It's so many symptoms, so many different forms of it. And it's so hard to diagnose. Get a broken leg, well, he's got a broken leg. There's the x-ray, it's obvious. PTSD is not. And like in my case, they, they proved it. They were, they were adamant, you've got PTSD. And I was adamant that I don't think I have in this instance. And then it also led on to me, the other problem of it, it was me inside then going, well, actually, have I? Because they're all saying it. They're adamant that I have. Well, maybe this is, maybe it is PTSD. So I'm now second guessing myself, thinking back to all the instances I've been through. Well, is it because as a result of that? Which I'm open to admit now that it still could be uh, in some form. And then the other side of me going, well, is it easier for me to just say it is? Because they're all saying it. If I just go along with it and go, oh, yeah, okay, it is, send me. At least I'll get to speak to somebody in some form and get some kind of support. So. It, it's a very difficult subject and situation because there's not a lot of experience with people dealing with it. We're able to just go, right, it is this, it's in this category, and this is how we deal with it. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, it, it's a big problem, but not with a black and white solution. Your solution to it in the end was to kind of be active and do stuff, achieve stuff, and, and get out of this rut. Mm. And you started your charity. Yeah. You tell yeah. us a bit about that. Yeah, so I, I've always got to have some kind of project or something that I'm working towards, which is easy to say, oh, that's the golden solution. Not always easy to carry out, but it's a good guideline. And 
We've done the tramp face missions over the years, raised money for charities, so a group of friends, local friends, decided. We, we got a little bit disillusioned with the, the big national charities. We were raising money from them, and we were like, well, we know they're doing good work, but where's the money actually going? We don't, we don't know. We'd like, because we're going to continue doing it in large sums, we'd like to have a little bit more insight to where it's actually going on the ground. So we thought, well, we, if we're going to continue doing it, <clears throat> why don't we start our own charity? So we looked into it, we did, we set one up, we got um, registered charity status, which is huge then for um, transparency and get, getting funding. So we set up a charity called Salute, which is spelled S-A-1-U-T-E, so the postcode of Swansea, S-A-1, um, as a veterans charity. We managed to get enough money to buy a plot of land in Brecon, um, which is woodland that we want to turn into a retreat. We still got the land. We bought it just before COVID. So boom, that uh, the work to develop that went out the window. So it's now uh, an ongoing process. The charity is now based in my business, a cafe bar in Swansea called Copper. Uh, I let it live there rent free, which is a, a bonus for it, which most charities don't get. We do coffee mornings for veterans and support. They can come anytime and, and, and chat to myself. And we started a bike venture as well called Salute Cycles which we, veterans can get free or subsidised bike hire to improve their well-being, uh, or even to borrow if, they, if they're going for a job interview or need it to borrow to go and see their children, um, they can come and borrow a bike of us. So yeah, we started the charity and it's still going now. We've managed to fight off all the difficulties and still going. So what, what's next? What's your next mission? Um, I'm turning the books into audio books. So that's not as easy as I thought it would be. I thought, oh, I just sit down and read. Are you going to narrate microphone. I am narrating it myself, yeah. Uh, which I think is because they're biographical. I think it's, it's a key thing because for me, there's a big difference between someone reading you a story and somebody telling you their story. So I'm narrating them. It's not as easy as sitting down and reading as I'm finding out. I got more books to write, more, another two tramp face from the missions that we've done and a travel book about when I went to South America on my own for eight weeks. The charity needs more work. Uh, my business is still recovering, small independent business from COVID, the energy crisis, a lot of work to do with that. And dare say it, another tramp face mission, which um, the subject of Ukraine has been brought up. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that one. Yeah, I look forward to hearing about that. Lee West, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me, Lee. Cheers.